This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I think a lot of people feel broken and hopeless. And that's on us too, on us mental health professionals, because this whole disease model also suggests to people that if they're struggling with a mental health problem, that there's something wrong with them, like there's a disease wrong with you, like an infection, like a cancer. And that is disempowering. And it makes you less able to tolerate what really are the natural expected ups and downs of life and sometimes really bad ups and downs of life. And it just sets you up to be less kind to yourself and less accepting of the full range of your experiences. That was Tracy Dennis Tawari on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. 
I'm here with Katie, our dissemination coordinator, to talk about a wonderful episode about mindset around uncomfortable emotion. I had the chance to interview author, psychologist, and wonderful conversationalist Tracy Dennis Tawari about her book, Future Tense. And I'm so excited that Katie is here to join me because Katie's an anxiety specialist and Tracy's work is really about anxiety, although there's a lot of themes around uncomfortable emotions in general. But Katie, I'm really excited to hear your take on this episode, given your specialization. Yes, I think I almost wish that our listeners could have seen me when I was listening to the episode. I almost felt like, well, I'm not a religious person, but I, I, I almost imagine it being as if I was in one of those church sermons where you can't see me, but my hand is in the air and I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, because I think, you know, Tracy really brought to our listeners that, you know, anxiety is, is not bigger than us. You know, we, we are the ones and the holders of anxiety. And so if from that lens and from that view, like our perception of anxiety will, will change. And then our limits that we have for ourselves are going to change. And so I, I just really appreciated everything that she said. Yeah. And one of the major take-home messages is that if you're experiencing anxiety or really any other uncomfortable emotion, even at pretty high levels, that the primary experience of that emotion is not an indicator of there being something wrong with you, but rather an indicator that there's either something really important to you that's getting tripped up or that you may need to be learning different ways to navigate your internal experience, that it's really our response to those emotions that can be healthier and healthy. The emotions just are. They're human. Some of us are wired to be more anxious or more depressed. Um, I speak as somebody who's wired to be more anxious. Um, and you know, that, that used to, you know, before I got into acceptance and commitment therapy, I used to really think that there was something wrong with me and being able to get exposed to literature, like the studies that Tracy references and talks about in our conversation has really helped me to change my mindset around my own brokenness. And I think it's such a powerful message. This is an idea that has existed for a long time, but we operate largely in a medical model around mental health that it's, you know, there's something that needs to be fixed. But I think more and more this message is getting out. And one of my kids was given this book that the title is There's No Such Thing as a Dragon by Jack Kent. And it's an adorable story about a little boy who who wakes up one morning to discover that there's a little dragon in his house. And his mom and his dad refuse to acknowledge the dragon's presence. They say, there's no such thing as a dragon. And the more that they deny the presence, the existence of this dragon, the bigger the dragon gets. He gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it's this really nice metaphor for for what psychologists call emotion suppression or thought suppression. And the more we try to pretend that something isn't happening or shouldn't happen, the bigger, the stickier, the more um, intolerable it becomes. And the end of the story, not to give it too much away, is that they start to accept the presence of this dragon. And the dragon doesn't go away, but he stops being such a huge monstrosity. And I think that message is so powerful. And I'm so excited that it's getting out outside of academia, because I think this is something that researchers have known, but it just, you know, because of pop psychology and our medical model that we typically operate under, it is a message that I think has had a hard time gaining a foothold. So I'm really happy that Tracy's out there getting the message to to more people. Yeah. I, you know, one thing that struck me with Tracy's message is even just considering sort of the the meta of this, of we're we're taught to think that anxiety is bad or having an anxiety disorder is wrong. And even from that lens of knowing like, there are societal messages and ways that we learn that, you know, learning is, is a gift, like learning words to help us to describe and categorize. These are all things that are gifts, but it can be to great detriment when we start labeling things as good or bad, especially when they are inside of us. And so if society has taught us, especially with that sort of medical model that you need to get rid of anxiety, then naturally 
when feelings show up in our body that don't feel comfortable, our brain is going to label that as bad. And you have this beautiful brain that has a wonderful ability to problem solve when it notices a problem. And so as long as you see anxiety as a problem or this message that's showing up or this idea or memory that's showing up as a problem, your brain will do exactly what it's designed to do and it will problem solve and it will lead to like continued distress and continued reinforcement of of anxiety. And so what we really, you know, I think Tracy even said that is just taking a step back and seeing that anxiety is something that exists in our body. Um, it's not a problem to be solved. And building that confidence that like, hey, actually, I can have anxiety and still do all of these things will, I mean, I'll allow some uncertainty for all of our anxious folks of Usually when we do what matters with the presence of anxiety, it is that much more rewarding. It is that much more confidence building. And I think Tracy really brings in that message with um, how we how we need to rethink anxiety. Yeah. And she has these three principles that I just want to list out because threaded throughout our conversation are specific things that you can try to really put these principles into action. And the principles are learning how to be anxious in the right way. It's not how to not be anxious. It's how to be anxious in the right way, how to sort of optimize this experience that you're going to have no matter how hard you try not to. And in fact, the harder you try not to, the more you'll have it. So the three principles are to see anxiety as information. And to listen to that information. And the second principle is, after you've listened, if you determine that that anxiety isn't useful, to let it go. And she offers a number of strategies for how to do that. And the final principle is, if that anxiety is useful, and there's so many ways that it can be useful, and she talks a lot about the various ways that anxiety really can serve us, to do something purposeful with it. So we hope that you listen to this episode with those principles in mind and get as much as you can out of it so that you too can be anxious in the right way. Dr. Tracy Dennis-Tawari is an anxiety researcher, author, founder of Wise Therapeutics, and a psychology and neuroscience professor. We are here to discuss her amazing book, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad. And a shout out to Moises Hernandez, one of our listeners, for suggesting to have you on Psychologist Off the Clock. Welcome, Tracy. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Adam Grant's blurb just captures the essence of this book, which is, and he writes, this book is going to smash your existing views about anxiety and replace them with more helpful ones. I love this reconceptualization of what anxiety is. So you say that anxiety has a major PR problem. (laughs) So I wonder if you can start us off by explaining why anxiety as a bad guy is inaccurate. I think that we all know that anxiety is one of the crises we face today. And um, and certainly when we look at the world around us, anxiety really fits, right? Because this is a world with a lot of change, a lot of uncertainty. You know, as a mental health professionals, I well, I actually um, became a mental health professional on uh, September 11th, 2001, defending my dissertation, like literally at 9 a.m., we, wow. uh, yeah, so that was a moment when the world changed and yeah. anxiety is something that, you know, has always been a problem. It's been on the rise as a disorder. And as our world has changed and become so complex, this is something we share as a struggle. And, and that's, you know, and, and, I, and I really do want to acknowledge too that anxiety disorders are not a PR problem. You know, they're not just, you know, just change your mind and you're not going to have an anxiety disorder. But I do think that when we look around and say, hey, wait a second, we've been doing amazing science for the past 20 years plus. Our advances are incredible. We have excellent treatments. We have science that shows us through randomized clinical trials that, you know, we can we can help a lot of people a lot of the time. We have problems with access. We have, you know, we have a lot of extra burdens today. But why aren't these solutions working? Why are not only mental health problems, but anxiety disorders in particular on the rise, especially in our youth. Uh, you know, the stats, as I think you and your listeners probably know well, 
some, you know, some estimates put us at a half of us in our lifetime will struggle with a mental health condition. A third of us in our lifetime specifically will struggle with an anxiety disorder. So why aren't these solutions working? I think there are many answers, but one answer we have not really investigated as a society is the fact that our beliefs about anxiety, you know, anxiety is sort of the prime case study here. So let's, we'll start with anxiety. We could talk about other emotions and, and problems, but that our, our beliefs about anxiety are actually getting in the way of us making helpful decisions, coping as well as we can, and even benefiting from treatments when we are struggling with an anxiety disorder. And I, you know, when I say it's a PR problem, I, it's a little funny. And I like to be a little funny about mental health because I think we need to loosen up a little and we need have, some more, humor there. have more hope, have more, you yeah. know, you know, know that yeah. we can do it. And it's, a, it's yes. part of being human. But I think that that we underestimate the power of these beliefs and these mindsets, because not only do they shape our thoughts, they shape our choices, they shape how we understand our life, and they even shape our biology. So if we don't realign our mindset about anxiety, I believe that we actually will keep going further down this destructive path and also have fewer opportunities to benefit from the great treatments that do exist. So I think this is the crucial not we have to unwind um, at this moment in time. Okay, so there's two different directions that I want to go, and I'm, I'm, I'll just sort of put a pin in one, but I want to dive into mindsets in just mm-hmm. a moment. But before we do that, I want to have you help me define and distinguish between anxiety and anxiety disorders, but also between anxiety and stress and anxiety and fear. They're all kind of related. Mm-hmm. And I think your book doesn't pretend to capture all of it. And so it's important that we're clear about what it is that we're talking about. So yeah, help us help us disentangle some of those. Thank you. Concepts. No, I love starting with definitions because, you know, anxiety feels bad and it feels like stress and it feels like fear. And so it becomes this big kind of in in inchoate sort of monster of unpleasantness and suffering. And so until we make these distinctions, I think it's even more overwhelming. So thank you. For, I love that you started with that. I'm also an academic and a nerd, so I love definitions. So, <laughs> so right. So what is, why isn't anxiety the same as fear? Because it feels a lot like fear. It feels a lot like stress. Yeah. Um, I like to start with fear because I think it's the clearest distinction. So fear is the reaction we have when we face certain and present danger in the moment. So like someone's holding a knife to your throat. Um, there's, you know, there's a stranger coming towards you down the dark alley, name, name your fear. You have a snake, you know, you, you have a snake in front of you and it's, and and you're scared of snakes or it's about to bite you. So it's in the present moment and it's certain that you are in danger right now. And, you know, the typical response we think of is it's this kind of threat response and detection system, right? The fight, flight, or freeze sort of response. So we often just say anxiety is the same thing, but anxiety has nothing to do with the present tense. It's, and that's, this is why I named the book future tense. It's really all about the future. It's this anxious, nervous apprehension that we have when we look into the future, which is always uncertain by definition. Anything could happen at any point, honestly, right? So it's we look into the uncertain future and we know that something bad could happen. But anxiety also helps us tune into the fact that something good is still possible because you're only anxious when you still have hope. So think about a great, you know, an example that I think illustrates it well is we have a big job interview or podcast tomorrow, right? So we're looking forward to something that we're we're a little anxious about. So it could go very poorly. That's why we're anxious, right? We're 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 thinking, oh, I could bomb it, I could really sound dumb, all these things. But when you're anxious, you also consider the fact that, wait, or I could do well. Because what anxiety is priming us to do is to hold that possibility in our minds. It primes us to prepare to focus, to act, uh, when we have that sort of fight flight response that feels like that, it's actually also our body, you know, you know, our hearts pumping blood to our brain and our body and sending oxygen to our brain so we can think more clearly. It's, it's doing these, it's triggering things like oxytocin, which is the social bonding hormone, which makes us reach out to others to seek social support, which is the best way to cope with most things. It actually primes us to, it primes the release of dopamine in our brain which is not just the feel-good hormone. It's not just addiction and all those sorts of things. It's also what primes us to work towards things we really want. And it integrates, it's this little shuttlecock messenger in our brain that helps integrate all the areas of the brain that can help us pursue goals and do better. So that's anxiety, you know? So to just limit it to the three Fs, fight, flight, and freeze is, is really, that's part of the PR problem 
because anxiety is much more than that. Yeah. And how, so, so I think that you're already sort of starting to dig into some of the positive aspects that anxiety can really be motivational, that it can be a sign of hope if, uh, and a sign of what we're wanting to work towards. Backing up a, a moment, how does anxiety, according to psychologist definition, differ than stress? Right. And so stress, it can involve anxiety. It can involve sadness. It can involve joy. Like when we're stressed out about planning a wedding or, or some other special event. Stress is about this mismatch between the resources you have to bear on the situation and the demands that are being made on you. And the stress response system, which is recruited often when we're feeling fear or or anxiety or sadness and anger for that matter, it's really um, allowing our body to meet the demands we face. And it's always, our bodies are always striving for, for aliostasis to find balance and change. And so stress is a much broader umbrella that encompasses a lot more. It also can feel really bad. And so that's why, you know, we're lumping it into this bad thing, but we we assume that mental health is the absence of negative feelings and stress. And it's just that the opposite is true. You know, mental health is about how we navigate the inevitable struggles of being human. And because we mental health professionals have, I think, unintentionally portrayed mental health in this way, almost robotically, like you have it or you don't, like a disease. You know, and, you know, I think that is part of the mindset problem as well. And it, and, um, and I know you had uh, mentioned the difference with anxiety disorders and anxiety. We could speak to that. I think that's an important distinction as well. Yeah, please. So, you know, you, when you have a, a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, you have a checklist of things, right? That the doctor needs to check off and indicate, oh, you have this many symptoms, you know, five out of 10 or whatever it is for this duration of time. And usually that also involves when it comes to anxiety disorders, intense feelings of anxiety. But intense and frequent feelings of anxiety is not enough to diagnose an anxiety disorder. You also have to have indicators of what's called functional impairment, that this, not just really the anxiety, but the way you're coping with the anxiety is getting in the way of living your life well, of loving, creating, working, learning, doing all those things we need to do. So it's not that we have a problem with too much anxiety right now when we are struggling as a society with anxiety disorders. It's that we have a problem with how we're coping with anxiety. Now, again, that's not to underplay how when you're really struggling with this overwhelming feeling of anxiety on a day-to-day basis, how hard and debilitating that can be. But to villainize, is that a word? It might be. To (laughs) bake into a villain. (laughs) Feeling of anxiety is actually misdirecting where our solutions should go. The solutions we need to apply are in how we're coping and how we learn to expose ourselves to those difficult feelings and work our way through. Yeah. So, so I love that you're framing it in this way, that anxiety itself is not the villain. It's sort of how we respond to anxiety. And this is really consistent with ideas from acceptance and commitment therapy, that it's really our relationship to our thoughts and our feelings and our internal experiences that determines whether or not sort of we're functioning well, that the primary emotion of anxiety itself is not the problem, but rather, you know, learning to relate to it in ways that work well for us. That's beautifully put. And it makes people feel sometimes, I think, that if that's the case, then it's sort of taking away an explanation they might have for why they're suffering, you know, and this whole, like the idea that there's a chemical imbalance or there's this this destructive anxiety, and it's a disease, and that's what's stopping me. When when that approach is questioned, and you shift it to, well, there are ways that we can cope that can help us do better. People sometimes feel that 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 sort of um, that their blame invalidating. is invalidating. That it's invalidating, gaslighting. That the blame is being placed on them in a different way. And so I love that you brought up acceptance and commitment therapy because there's such great evidence that this is an incredible approach. There's so much personal clinical experience of this being transformative for people. And I hope that in that discussion, it's it's not perceived as blaming to say that it's in our response, but as empowering. And I, I'm sorry, I think you were about to say something I interrupted you before, but I did want to add that because I think this viewpoint is not, is not um, pathologizing. I think it's really empowering and that's my intention in it. Yeah. So, and, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you respond to people who might say that, you know, Tracy, you're basically telling me that 
it's just in my mindset that this is a problem or my mindset is the cause of this problem rather than the fact that I have a debilitating disease. Like for example, OCD has very clear biological markers Mm -hmm. that really, you know, because we understand some of the brain science behind it suggests that it's not just a mindset issue. It's really, it really is a biological disorder. And so how do you help people understand why the mindset piece remains so important? It's a wonderful opportunity to have these discussions when people push back, even though it can be painful because people feel that invalidation. And what I try to explain very clearly is that by by pointing to mindset as a linchpin in the solution, it doesn't mean that that's the cause. Rather, what, what, what it's highlighting is that when we shift our mindset, we can benefit from treatment more. I mean, if you even look at the at the requirements or the goals, rather, of all gold, gold standard treatment approaches, especially for anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive related disorders and, and trauma related to you know, trauma and stressor related disorders, what is the key process that has to happen? Exposure and response prevention. What's the exposure to the unpleasant experience? And what's the response prevention? You're, you're preventing avoiding. And so your mindset is crucial here. Because if you really buy into this disease model, right, of, of anxiety, what do you do? You try to eradicate it, like, like cancer or COVID. You avoid it at all costs, like you would a, a disease. And you can no longer engage with it as anything that's a part of you because it's like a cancer to cut out. So the mindset actually, I believe, is a crucial ingredient in how we can really benefit most from therapies. That are, you know, even though the mindset does not call, you know, shifting your mindset doesn't necessarily have any causal link to why you're struggling with OCD and anxiety disorder or a trauma related disorder. I love that. So we're talking about mindset and I wonder maybe if we can just back up. I first want to just give note to, I've heard you say um, in another interview that you don't see your book as traditional self-help but rather as a book that you hope will transform a reader's mindset. And I actually love that. So I'm curious if you could just help us understand what is a mindset? Why are mindsets so powerful? And then what's the transformation of mindset that you're hoping that readers get to by reading your book? Yeah, thank you. It, it really, it's sort of like a meta self-help book in that sense, <laughs> that, because that's the soul, that, that is the sole goal of the book. It's to and you know, and that's because a mindset, um, you know, it's not just a, a system of beliefs or to say, oh, um, I'm going to, you know, if I believe that anxiety can be an ally, then I'm just going to talk about it all the time. And it's so much deeper than that. It's actually when we have a true filter. So a mindset is more like a filter, right? And it, it's a filter in and a filter out. It fil- filters in what we even understand and perceive in the world. And then it filters out the kinds of decisions and choices we make, and it even affects our biology. So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, One, um, you know, there's been incredible mindset research um, on stress, right? And anxiety, and it's kind of they have actually lumped in stress and anxiety. There's a great study that was actually targeting stress, but they had uh, folks who had social anxiety disorder take part in it. So I think of it as an anxiety mindset intervention. So this is Jameson and colleagues out of Harvard. Their first. study demonstrating this was around 2013. Other incredible researchers who do mindset research have done similar work. So what they did is they brought socially anxious, diagnosed socially anxious folks into the lab and then asked them to do something that's essential kryptonite for them, which is to give an impromptu public speech that would be judged by a panel of judges. It's hard for all of us. And for someone where social anxiety is really about this fundamental anxiety of being judged, of being you know humiliated, of this is a setup for them. So, so they were brought in, told this was about to happen. They had a few minutes to prepare to give a speech on a hot button topic, like the death penalty or abortion or something like that. And half of these folks though, they did something very special. They did a mindset shift uh, intervention. All they did was they taught them uh, about uh, stress and anxiety. And what they said were things like, you know, you are going to feel nervous when you, when you're, when you do this, as you know, your heart's going to race. You might even feel dizzy. You're going to have these bodily responses, but you should know that this is not you getting prepared to fail. This is you getting primed to succeed because it's your heart rate is increasing to pump oxygen to your brain. 
It's because these biologicals, and they they just kind of went down the list of here are the biological changes, here's the mental changes. It's going to make you more acute and focused, and you'll you, you know you'll be able to speak more clearly. They they just lined it all up and gave the evidence, and then even talked about the evolutionary function because Darwin wrote about the emotions. His third book in his trilogy was the expression of emotion in man and animals, and they educated folks a bit about that. Fifteen minutes maybe of this, and then they had them do the public speech, and then the other half of the folks didn't learn these things. And what do, you, what do you know? Not only did the folks who learned to think of anxiety and stress as a potential ally as preparing them to succeed, not only did they do better objectively when they gave their speech with you know, fewer ums and ahs and you know, they measured this, but their heart rates were slower and their blood pressure was lower. Now, it wasn't zero, but what, what their cardiovascular profile reflected was this sort of being primed for action, to be primed to perform at your kind of the sweet spot, right? This sort of, um, um, and and the other um, half that didn't learn to think of anxiety and stress differently, their biology was through the charts. I mean, their hearts were racing and they didn't perform as well. So what does this show us? This shows us that just the way that we're filtering in this experience and then what we put back out into the world and even our biology is fundamentally changed you know, based on our beliefs about about what these indicators mean. So this is something that we can do this every day. We can do this in our own life as we face challenges, as we face stressors, and just making that shift. And it's a practice that you can get better at. Making the shifts over time, they will just make, they will literally prime us to succeed much more and to fail much less. So that's why, again, it might not cause anxiety disorders to have a mindset or although there are causal factors, perhaps it might not, you know, be the be all end all for everyone, but it will set us up for more success. And that's really why I believe the mindset shift is the first thing we need to do before we do anything else. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah. And I, I mean, the mindset research is so powerful. We see it with the power that it has with stress, with anxiety, with happiness, with interpersonal conflict. There's so many areas where when we shift our mindset to see the the potential, even in uncomfortable situations or internal experiences, mm-hmm. and we really can harness a lot more of that, the good stuff that comes along with the discomfort. And I think that's really what your book hammers home in a, in a really compelling way. And, um, you know, I, I'll just like recommend that folks check out Aaliyah Crumb's TED talk on mindset. And it's, it's just really powerful stuff. And also Kelly McGonigal's, she talks about stress specifically and references Jeremy Jameson's research. It's, it's really cool and mind altering. But what I want to ask you is, so we know this from research. It's, it's pretty consistent that shifting our mindset around anxiety is is powerful in a very positive way. It's very uh, healing. And yet medical science sort of hasn't caught on. We sort of really have gotten stuck in this treat the discomfort. And so I'm curious, you know, when you talk to a room of physicians or psychologists um, who are really, you know, there to do the work of alleviating suffering, I'm curious how you help them to orient in this way that encompasses, you know, both encouraging people to embrace the discomfort, but also, you know, their role as, as practitioners that are there to help people feel less terrible? That's a great question. I've gotten almost no pushback from mental health professionals because I think that they feel what I feel, which is a profound sense of failure. And it's really why I wrote the book. Because if we have all this, if we've devoted our lives to this, why isn't it working? 
So I think people are very open to this idea. I think, you know, if you're a psychiatrist, you might have a different opinion on the role of medication. And, and usually it's not even radically different. Usually it's, you know, well, we do overprescribe <laughs> or, you know, there are other, you know, we have to get better at the delivery systems that also support people to have other therapeutic approaches, but perhaps this is the best thing in the short term. And so, you know, I think that we're, I really don't think anyone with any thoughtfulness can disagree that, that first of all, that what we're doing isn't working, but also that when it comes to emotional health, emotions are not a disease state in the way that an infectious disease state is. It just doesn't work like that. Tom Insel, about a month or so ago at the Aspen Ideas Festival, he uh, wrote a book recently. Um, I haven't read it yet, but it, it really... I and think, he's the uh, former director of NIMH. Thank you. Yes, he's the former director of the NIMH and so was in really in control of all the um, research funds, uh, many research funds that funded me, for example, <laughs> throughout my research. I think he had something like $22 billion of research funds under his control during his 12 or 14 year tenure. And he's a, you know, he's a, a MD and um, he wrote this book about how we heal. And, and he said at the Aspen Ideas Festival, the infectious disease model of mental health and mental illness does not work. Full stop. It doesn't work. Now, what does that mean? And he's a guy who funded research that, that essentially tested infectious disease models, the disease model of mental illness. What does that mean? It means if you think about emotional discomfort, suffering as a, as an infection to eradicate, right? To make go away. That is just not how emotions work. It's, it's the, you know, in the simplest way, it's like the white bear phenomenon. If I tell you, don't think of a white bear, your mind is immediately, it's going to pop up into your mind, probably stronger than ever. And emotions are exactly the same. We cannot suppress them away. It never works. Everyone knows this really in their heart of hearts. And so for us to decide, well, someone comes to me and they're feeling a little anxious and so, or a lot anxious. And so the, the really the only solution they need is to just suppress it and make it go away. I don't, how could that make sense to anyone as the only solution? And then given everything we know about anti-anxiety meds, and there are many solutions out there. There's everything from, of course, benzodiazepines to SSRIs to beta blockers. There are lots of solutions. What they're meant to do, and every bit of science behind them shows, is that they're meant to bring us down physiologically to a baseline that will allow us to benefit from other things we do to manage our anxiety. They were never meant to be a long-term solution for 99% of people. And the other thing that happens, especially with benzodiazepines, which are highly addictive and can synergistically call, cause overdose deaths, it's the third leading cause of overdose deaths in this country, is they actually change our brain chemistry such that our baseline of anxiety actually rises. And so it becomes harder to manage over time. So although I think many people can benefit temporarily from benzodiazepines, and probably some psychiatrists would argue with me and say, no, some people need it even you know, longer than you might agree with. You know, I, I, I think that it's very clear that just to medicate someone is not going to heal their anxiety. It's like giving a person a fish they'll eat for a day. You need other techniques. You need to build other skills to learn to fish and to cope with anxiety for a lifetime. So I think that I would get maybe a little pushback from professionals and definitely folks who suffer from anxiety disorders. And then that's a discussion to have. What's the balance there? What role is medication playing in your life? Can, you know, can it be useful? How long is it useful? What else can you do to move towards towards healing? Yeah, I love I love that take on medication because you know, from the point of view of acceptance and commitment therapy, it's really about uh, using tools to allow you to really engage in life in value aligned ways. And mm -hmm. so, if medication can bring the edge down enough so that you can learn tools over the long term, then it really might serve you well. But if the the medication is dampening things down and causing you not to be able to function in ways that are consistent with how you want to live over time or, or sort of worsening the suffering, then it really isn't an effective tool to be applying. And yet, you know, the short-term alleviation can feel so freeing for somebody who's engaged, who's really deeply suffering. And I, and, you know, um, to say, you know, it's sort of like selling broccoli to people to say, Hey, you want to, you know, you know, 
honor your anxiety, you know, <laughs> embrace it, really it. Is, <laughs> embrace it. No, you know, it's not. And it's just that the only way to feel good is to know how to feel these bad feelings. There's just no other way. If there were, <laughs> I'd really advocate for that, you know, and, and it's interesting too, when you shift your mindset about what medication can serve for you, what role it plays for you rather. I think you also start to probably use those medications more effectively because you don't equate feeling bad with a danger signal automatically. You don't equate it with being broken. I think a lot of people feel broken and hopeless. And that's on us too, on us mental health professionals, because this whole disease model also suggests to people that if they're struggling with a mental health problem, that there's something wrong with them, like there's a disease wrong with you, like an infection, like a cancer. And that is disempowering. And it makes you less able to tolerate what really are the natural expected ups and downs of life and sometimes really bad ups and downs of life. And it just sets you up to be less kind to yourself and less accepting of the full range of your experiences. So I think that's also really important. Well, and I'm curious what you might say to somebody who had a constitution that, you know, was leaning towards excessive worry, you know, somebody who is just kind of wired for more anxiety, you know, of the cognitive and physiological kind. Um, even if such a person were to be kinder to themselves and sort of uh, recognize that anxiety is just a part of natural human wiring, you know, they might still say, but I'm just uncomfortable all the time. I could imagine people saying that, and I can't speak to every experience. My belief, and based on both research and clinical experience, is that one reason we get so uncomfortable over time is that we have these opportunity costs in terms of developing the skills that we might need extra of if we're temperamentally wired to be more worried and anxious. And the only way out is through. Um, You know, I'm a developmentalist by training as well. So I really believe the temperament, you know, we come to the world with certain tendencies. Um, my son, who is featured heavily in the book. Yeah, how did he <laughs> feel guy, about he's that? Gonna be so a- he's going to kill me one day. He's a sweetheart. <laughs> but he's 13 now. I wrote this book, you know, over the past few years. So he was a little younger. He's going to kill me sometime. But um, he was wired a little more anxious. He's just yeah. a little more temperamentally, a little more of a worrier. He's a firstborn like I am. And he's, you know, and I noticed very early on that he needed that extra scaffolding and support. And it doesn't mean, you know, you throw someone in the deep end, but it means, you know, and parenting is hard. You know, and we we also, this is also a self-help culture where we feel there's one right way to parent. And that's yeah. another whole other conversation about it. Oh, yeah. You do address parenting in yeah. here. And I, I love yeah. how you take it on. Um, so, you know, if we don't have time to go in depth into it, I really encourage people to check out the chapter on parenting. Oh, thank you. And the, yes, and the, and the tagline of, of that chapter is really that kids are not fragile. They're anti-fragile. They're <laughs> anti-fragile, which are anti-fragile things are things that grow from challenge, are, that require challenge. And our emotions are that way. So we come into this world and maybe um, we're more anxious You're, or maybe your child is more anxious. That's the opportunity to not accommodate that anxiety by helping them avoid everything. That's actually the last thing we should do when it comes to helping others and ourselves with anxiety. That's the opportunity to say, how can I supportively, gradually help myself, help my child face those things that are uncomfortable and come out the other side and then be able to rejoice when you feel stronger at the end. And you will, because we're not fragile. That's this other part of this mental health equation that mental health is the absence of emotional discomfort. It means that we're these fragile teacups that will just smash. And it's just, it's just the opposite. So this is another part of the mindset shift that, that I'm really, I really hope that in the book and conversations like this one, and, you know, I was you know on another podcast and someone responded to it on social and mentioned that, that they had a conversation with their teenage daughter because of that. And I was like, those are, this is what needs yeah. to happen. Not just more conversations, but different ones, because we're talking plenty about mental health. And I don't think it's necessarily, <laughs> yes, acceptance is very good that there's mental health issues. We have to be there for each other. But I think some of these conversations are making us feel more fragile instead of empowering us. And so- I well, hope I wonder, that this book spurs those kinds of conversations. And, and that sort of brings up this controversial area of trigger warnings and safe spaces that you address in the book. And I wonder if you can share your view on some of the problem 
problems in the way that we have responded to anxiety in youth or discomfort in youth, you know, in well-meaning ways. Oh, certainly. I mean, what human being who cares about other human beings doesn't want to alleviate their suffering, especially if it's your kid or a young person or a vulnerable person. So, so this whole idea of trigger warnings of safe spaces, the fundamental premise of, of, of those is that when we feel negative or painful emotions, it's, it's, it's damaging. It does harm. People actually say, you, you're doing harm to me because I'm, I'm, I'm feeling these feelings. Now, there is harm in the sense of if you're, you know, if there's a bigotry, if there's, you know, obviously there is kinds of speech that are violent speech, but being emotionally uncomfortable is not a violent form of speech. And so what are trigger warnings? Trigger warnings are this idea that if you are a person with a history of either trauma or of emotional discomfort around an issue, then by hearing something or being exposed to an idea that is related to that, that will trigger you to have a trauma response that then will make you do worse. We overuse the word trauma. So a lot of time, what we actually mean is emotional discomfort. So that, And some people are traumatized, and that's a separate discussion. But that's but, almost why it needs to be yeah. used carefully, because we yes. conflate emotional discomfort with trauma when we use it casually. Exactly. I agree 100%. And so the trigger warning, if you actually look at research on it, so when you warn someone ahead of time, warn someone ahead of time that they're about to be exposed to something that might make them uncomfortable, and then you see, how do you feel? What's your physiology like? What is, you know, what's your reaction? People do worse, actually. The evidence suggests so far after a trigger warning, not better. Now, the data are not completely in. I'm a scientist and I believe we need to keep doing this research. But I believe that these constant trigger warnings are actually shifting our mindset towards fragility, right? And also being an opportunity cost in learning to actually work through some of these uncomfortable feelings when appropriate. I'm not advocating to throw traumatized people into trauma situations in an unthoughtful way, but I think there is much more discussion we need to have. And, um, and safe spaces are, are, are similar um, in, yeah. in how we are in these spaces where no uncomfortable speech or people who have, uh, um, you know, you know, really unpleasant opinions or even really, you know, really objectively objectionable opinions that they aren't allowed to speak or they should be banned or, you know, this, this notion of safe spaces, I think that's also problematic in similar ways and actually is completely counter to how Lewin uh, that one of the fathers of social psychology first developed safe spaces. Yeah. I mean, this conversation about anti-fragility and, and, and sort of the ways that emotional discomfort actually makes us stronger, more resilient, more creative, more thoughtful, more knowledgeable, I think is so important. And that doesn't mean that emotional discomfort isn't uncomfortable. It is. It's sort of the nature yeah. of it, but that by allowing for it, learning to be curious about it. And that that's really largely what you advocate for is like being curious about that emotional discomfort. What, what is it telling you? Yeah. How is it informing what's important to you? How is it informing what isn't important to you? Kind of like a, a pain in your body that you need to be able to look at it to figure out, do I need to go to the doctor? Do I need to take a rest? Do I need to strengthen that area? Do I need to do more stretching yeah, or do I need to exactly. just kind of ignore it um, because exactly. it's not informative? Exactly. And this really, I think, comes from my background as an emotion scientist. And really, one of the predominant emotion theories and one that I was educated in is called functional emotion theory. And it's really almost Darwinian in the sense that we think of emotions as, as being packets of information that are, um, that are two things that are both appraisals of a situation, like where am I now in the world in relation to what I need? That's the appraisal part. And then action readiness tendencies, preparing us to act. So emotions, especially the uncomfortable ones, are a call to listen. They're not a call to panic. Now, yes, sometimes we panic. This is on a spectrum. So I do not want to say we never panic or you shouldn't panic. I myself have had uh, you know, panic attacks when I was a teenager. I, you know, This is something that happens to us. But, but that doesn't take away from the fact that emotions evolved to give us information. And each emotion gives us different types of information. And this is why I love anxiety, even though I hate it at the same time, because it's very unpleasant. I'm, I, don't, <laughs> I don't sit around inviting, believe me, I've, I have had plenty of anxiety lately. I'd love to not, but, but it's a call to really understand what you hope for. You know, one, one person told me once, it's one of the most beautiful things I've heard in relation to this book. She said, oh, 
I realize now that I'm not a person who struggles with anxiety because that never fit who I thought I was. I'm a person who struggles with hope because anxiety orients you to this future of possibilities. So it's a call to listen. What, what is in this future? You know, what does that podcast hold in store for me? You know, can I, and if it holds something good, can I prepare now in the present to make that or avert disaster? Can I do something to take care of myself and my loved ones? It allows you that opportunity. It tells you things like your purpose in life, like what really matters to you because you're only anxious when you care. So yes, it's, in, you know, it's, you know, cause you don't, you don't get anxious about, you know, stuff that doesn't tie into your sense of self or your priorities in life or what, you know, and you don't get anxious when you've given up hope because that's despair. So you're only anxious when you're in it to win it, when you hopeful still, even a shred of hope and you care about the future. So this is how can we silence that information? What an opportunity cost. It's not easy. It's an ally that needs a lot of negotiating with. (laughs) But it's still, yeah. right? But it's still an ally. And then you can, and then sometimes, as you mentioned, you have to let go of it because sometimes it's not the perfect messenger. It's giving, you know, it's giving us bad information or unclear information. It's overwhelming. There are times in our life, you know, it can orient you towards things you can control, but sometimes we can't control things in life. And it's just so terrible. And yeah. so sometimes we just, we do need a break to replenish ourselves, to rest and recover. But we can't know that unless we listen to anxiety first. Right. And then sometimes after we rest and recover, you know, and immerse ourselves in the present, there's so many great ways to do it in the present tense, whether it's therapy, yoga, meditation, uh, seeing a spiritual counselor, talking to a friend, you know, taking a walk in nature. There's so many ways we can care for ourselves. And we know those things. We are empowered to know those. You know, we do often know those things. But then we can turn back to anxiety and say, okay, it's not going anywhere. What is it telling me I need to do? Is there an actionable here? Is there something I can work for that's valuable to me? What are the possibilities in this uncertain future? Like that's what anxiety, those are the gifts that it can give us if we give it a chance. Yeah. Yeah. So there there really is so much to value about anxiety, but it is like a very loud, irritating passenger on the bus. Of life. <laughs> I love that. That's great. <laughs> and and I say this as somebody who I, I've definitely struggled with lifelong anxiety. Mine is more social and it points to the fact that I care very deeply about being likable and recognizing that anxiety holds that packet of information is really useful. And yet it it can be really disruptive. So for example, you know, anxiety can really come up while you're performing, you know, if you're on stage and you're worried about, um, is this review going to be bad? You know, or is this going to end my career? Mm-hmm. It can really be so, so disruptive. And so I'm curious how a mindset change can help to uh, orient people to manage the in the moment anxiety that really can be disruptive more effectively. It, it's, it's all about practice. So once you can start to, and not even perfectly, don't try to be perfect, please, <laughs> you know, because that's an enemy of the good, right? Once you you feel like, okay, I'm more open, I'm more curious. Now I'm about to give this public speech, or I'm about to go on a podcast, or, and now that I know that maybe anxiety is there to prime me, or it's because I really care, let's see if I can get a little, like, maybe I'll figure out a little bit more effectively how to handle that anxiety right before I go into that. You talk to performers, like artists and, and, you know, performers, and they say this all the time. They're like, oh my God, I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm still throwing up in the bathroom, like before every performance, but I have built these skills to know that I, now I need to challenge, channel this energy. It needs to go somewhere like a wave, right? You need to ride it. You need to surf it. And so I would say that, yes, it might not work so great the first time or the second time or the third time, but I bet you money that it's going to start working the fourth time and the fifth time and it will get better. And then you realize, wait a second, I might be struggling with anxiety, but it doesn't mean that there's this infection that needs to be eradicated. It means I have an opportunity to build more skills and I'm going to discover things I never would have considered because now I'm open to this possibility. And usually if you really tune yourself to the the hope that hides in anxiety, you'll, 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 you'll kind of find that, oh, wait a second, that opened up a new possibility because I took a chance. Or, oh, I didn't think I would like that, but wow, that's something really amazing in my life. So I think that the cost-benefit analysis, it almost always wins out when you, when you just, you know, you just keep believing 
that practice doesn't make perfect, but practice makes better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's why the mindset interventions are so powerful. They're like throwing a stone into the middle of a lake. They have all these ripple effects that, you know, there's sort of the initial change, but also just the changing of the frame in which you understand your internal experience just changes how you experience it over time. And it gives you more of a chance like growth mindset to seek out those positive experiences and have them kind of count more. Yeah. You can't even see these things in the world. That's why it's, it's like this filter because if you don't even, you know, I I could have in front of me, there's something um, that I actually study in my research called the threat bias. And it's this unconscious bias that we have to notice negative things at the expense of the positive. So if I'm giving a public speech, there's a, there are a hundred people in the audience, one guy in the back's falling asleep. Or oh, that's or always the guy I see. Right? And I can't see anything <laughs> besides that guy. No, and it's hard. And but it, but you know, and actually, there's this this therapeutic technique you might have heard of called attention bias modification. I actually founded a whole company. I'm not going to do a whole plug for my company, but it's called Wise Therapeutics, and we created we create gamified techniques. Computer, they're they're digital native actually because they were meant to be on the computer. So we make these brief mobile games that retrain these kinds of biases. And we started with stress and anxiety for that very reason. So um, it's out there. We're doing an FDA route to get sort of a, you know, there's this new exciting field of of prescribed digital therapeutics, of um, which is very interesting. That's we so also cool. have a commercially available version called Personal Zen. Um, so anyway, just to say that, but because these are unconscious biases, right? It's this filter where you don't even realize till five minutes in that you've been staring at that guy and not been able to see, literally not been able to see that 99 people are smiling at you. And of course, that is a, a linchpin in the vicious cycle of anxiety and nervousness in the moment. So if you can gain, if one can gain more flexibility through these very simple kind of cognitive training techniques, it gets at the unconscious in ways that maybe CBT or ACT or other kinds of more consciously focused techniques can't. Yeah. But we but we have all It's these like biofeedback things. almost. Mm, that's interesting. And you can definitely augment it with biofeedback. But yes, it's it's like this simple, yeah, I guess it is in a sense, because what you what you do with ABM, attention bias modification, is you learn to create an expectation surrounding the non-negative, you know, kind of threatening thing to a more safe, positive, pleasant thing. And it's not that you're consciously deciding to focus on the positive, but the game directs you there. So that yeah. unconsciously you just get into a new habit, which tells us that these, these biases are habits. And what happens with habits? You can break them and you can build new ones. And so this is also mindset just on an unconscious level. And it just shows us that we don't have to feel like this is like this. We can't make progress. We don't have to feel broken. Like we can change habits. We know we can change habits even when it's hard. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's such a nice optimistic message. Well, I, I definitely want to check out your company and the the game itself. <laughs> I wanted to maybe finish with one more positive association that anxiety has, which is to creativity. This is not something mm. we often think about, that um, anxiety can make us more creative. So I wonder if you can finish this off with this lovely tidbit that anxiety actually serves our creative lives in many ways. Right. And it, it this is and this is the thing about how to really start shifting our mindset. Some of us can wrap our head around the idea that anxiety is protective, right? Oh, yeah, it's like you, you feel anxiety and fear, and then you do something to take care of yourself. So that's adaptive. But that's almost like a vestigial organ that, yeah, but that evolved for handling saber-toothed tigers and all that, you know, and now we don't need it as much, and it's out of control. So that's sort of the story. But what if you start to think, wait, anxiety is not just protective, it's productive. Then you have to really dig in. So there is beautiful research out there. Um, experimental research. And, and if you think about your own life, you might have anecdotal evidence too, that when we're a little bit anxious, and I'm not saying we're having full bone panic, but when we actually have palpable anxiety, there's research to suggest that we actually become more persistent, more out of the box in our thinking, more ready to work at problem solving, and we come up with more interesting ideas. So there's this great uh, paper by DeDrew and colleagues um, was it 2008? Back in 2008, I think they published it. And they actually induced anxiety in people by making them write about some really anxiety-provoking event that happened in their personal past. And then they induced other emotions like happiness and anger and, other, you know, and they also ind- induced and, and uh, emotions that they qualified as deactivating. So there's activating and deactivating was their distinction. 
anxiety was an activating emotion because it propels you to action, anger, happiness. So there's negative and positive that's different, but they share this activation. Whereas sadness or peacefulness was actually more deactivating. It wasn't, you know, kind of priming you to do something. And then they gave them a really hard problem solving uh, creativity, fluency kind of a task where they had a problem to solve. They had to come up with new ideas. Um, they had to persist after some obstacles were thrown their way. And what do you know? One of the most effective emotions for actually promoting out of the box thinking, persistence, the quality of ideas was anxiety. And, and so just from this sort of intuitive level, you start to think, yeah, you know, if anxiety is what I care about, and it activates me to keep at something, even when obstacles are thrown my way, you can understand how you might be more innovative when you feel anxious. This wasn't a creative thing, but when my son was born with a congenital heart condition, I tell the story in, in the book, I had to harness my anxiety to really do everything I could think of to make sure he had the best care possible because I knew that he was going to have to have open heart surgery when he was just a few months old. So it's, it's this very, it's this very, you know, when we can channel it and we become accustomed to living with it, we can really use it. You know, Barbara Fredrickson has this mm. model of positivity broaden and build. And it almost seems like, although anxiety, we don't consider it a positive emotion, that it almost fits into that model of, you know, prompting us to sort of scan the environment for ways that we can thrive more. Yeah. I mean, it's our, one of our greatest tools for managing uncertainty because anxiety, again, it's not about threat. It's about uncertainty because you're always holding the positive and the negative possibilities yeah. of the future in mind. So, you know, Fredrickson's broaden, broaden and build theory really speaks to the benefits of when we recruit positive emotion, it allows us to be expansive in these ways, but sometimes we don't need expansiveness. Sometimes we need laser focus. That's why I opened the book with a story about the amazing um, American hero, Dr. Scott Parazinski, who's an astronaut who performed one of the longest spacewalks in history to repair a solar panel of the International Space Station. And it was hour after grueling hour of, of crawling out literally like in the void of space attached to safety by this boom that was just attached to his foot. I mean, it's insanity in terms of, but he had to harness all of that focus and anxiety. It wasn't a moment to be broadening and building. He had to yeah, have laser it was a moment focus. to be laser focused. Right. Yeah. Narrow. What we need is we need flexibility and we've just cut off. So I'm not saying only anxiety is there for you, but we've cut off all the benefits and that flexibility of that alchemy almost of being able to use different emotions when we need them and to feel confident in our ability to do so. And that's the flexibility and alchemy that we need to reclaim. And we need to really push back against an industry that I think has become very predatory in some circles to try to convince us that we're broken, that we have to fix it, that, oh, you feel anxious, better fix that right away. That's not serving us in the long run. Even if for me, even if there are well-intentioned people that I know there are, I think we're in this spiral now of just losing these parts of ourselves that we need. Right. And that's definitely a part of you know what prompted the opioid epidemic and, and other ways that we've begun to think of, you know, pain and discomfort that we, we create this inflexible approach of we must eradicate anything that isn't you know, delightful to experience. And that, that actually causes more suffering in the long run. Mm -hmm. I believe that. And that the benzodiazepine epidemic, which is very real as the third leading cause of overdose death right after opioids, you know, and the, is twin to the opioid ep epidemic, yeah. as you yeah. say. Well, if you have anxiety, treat anxiety or love someone with anxiety, you should definitely pick up Future Tense because there's a lot more that we weren't able to get to. And Tracy, where should people go to find out more about you and your work? Oh, thank you. Uh, you can go to my website, drtracyphd.com. I am also on social media um, uh, just to, you know, try to get some good information out there, uh, even though I have mixed feelings. <laughs> so you can find me on Instagram at drtracyphd and also on Twitter, uh, Tracy A. Dennis. On, on Twitter, where once in a while, I, I do like to, I do enjoy my tweets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have mixed feelings too. But thank you so much for joining us here. This oh, was so great. You. It was such a delight uh, to talk with you. Oh, a delight to talk with you. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Hey, Psychologist Off The Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.